Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping you lead better every day. And now here's your host. Hello, and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day, and we have a great episode for you this week. I had the opportunity to chat with Peyton Jones. And for those of you who don't know Peyton, Peyton is a serial church planter. He's an author, a leadership trainer, he's a podcaster, and he's recently been featured in the July-August issue of Outreach Magazine. Peyton is an all-around great guy with some tremendous experiences to draw from, having planted churches in both Europe and here in the U.S. In his latest book, Reaching the Unreached, Becoming Raiders of the Lost Art, Peyton suggests that, among other things, we've sacrificed reach for size, adventure for security, power for programs, and approval for applause. Now, on this week's episode, Peyton has some great insights for us, including how Starbucks, the Da Vinci Code, and a glam rock group from England all contributed to Peyton accidentally planting a church. He also talks about why we as ministry leaders need to stop looking for the silver bullet and what we should be looking for instead. And Peyton shares a simple exercise you can use to help your people naturally uncover their passions and spiritual gifts. So I'm really excited for you guys to listen in on my conversation with Peyton Jones. So sit back and enjoy. Peyton, I just want to welcome you to the Church Leaders Podcast. Thank you for making time to share with our audience today. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, super excited. Now, Peyton, you spent, I think it was about a dozen years in Europe uh, planting yeah. churches, ministering, right? And then most recently... Um, you planted a church in Long Beach, California, and that was, what was that, about six years ago now? Yeah, we started, yeah, roughly around then, um, okay. 2011. Okay, awesome. So you have had the opportunity to experience something that most pastors have not experienced. I mean, you've planted churches on two different continents. You've seen really different contexts. If you step back and take a look at churches in Europe and then contrast that to churches here in the U.S., what differences and what similarities do you see that would have an impact on how how we as pastors, you know, live out God's mission and, and, and do the ministry of, of the kingdom? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because I, I see Europe as kind of being like a time machine. If you want to see what's coming down the pipe for America in the future, you get on a plane and that's like going forward in time to a society and culture which really has moved on from the gospel. I mean, to a European, to their mindset, Christianity came, uh, it did its worst, and it went. And, you know, most people in Europe are, are, are grateful for it. But with that comes, with any secularization, the spiritual hunger, it's not too long before that sets back in because of the way that mankind was designed. And so, Rather than be intimidated by it, um, when I got there, I, I really was grappling with it. I had come in the late 90s to Europe where things were really booming for us to suddenly come into a country that had 1.3% of the population going to church and 0.3% evangelical. And for those that are bad at math, that's a third of a percent. But, you know, people were hungry. They, they, it was almost like a post-Christian society matching a pre-Christian society. And I see it this way, that if we'll look and learn from Europe, there's still time to get things back on track. I don't mean to go back in time and make it like the 80s or 90s. Nobody wants that. 
but to be better at reaching our culture than we have been in the last 10, 20, 30 years. And so when I look at the similarities, really I see the similarities between today and the first century. I believe that a, that a post-Christian world is very similar to a pre-Christian world. And one of the things that I pointed out in Reaching the Unreached, Becoming Raiders of a Lost Art, is that if the conditions are same, then the solutions are the same. And that's what we've been looking at in Reaching the Unreached. Now, Peyton, I got to tell you, I, I love your new book. Um, you're a great storyteller, by the way. Your, your stories are inspiring and very entertaining, uh, like the story of your encounter with a rugby player in an alley. And we'll just leave that as a teaser. You guys want to get the book to uh, read uh, how that how that turned out for Peyton. Um, one of the things that you say in that book is you say, when we commit to reaching the unreached, risk is inevitable. Do you feel that churches yeah. are generally embracing that risk or, or looking for ways to avoid that risk? I think we're risk averse by nature. And therefore, what we tend to do is we've replaced evangelism because nobody likes to be rejected or told no or, you know, um, thought less of. And I mean, that's the biggest risk we have um, in, in, in the Western world anyways. Uh, maybe you'll be ridiculed, maybe. But what we t- or for a church, you know, the unforgivable sin, it looks like we failed. And one of the things that I've learned to do over the years is embrace failure only because I've stood in places where Paul stood in Turkey and I've got the pages of scripture open where it says he preached there and he moved on. Nothing happened. But to me, the only failure is someone who doesn't try. It's not the person who sows the seed and it doesn't grow. And I still think that we don't quite understand how evangelism works and then the parable of the sower of the seed and all these things that that we hear about and we even pay lip service to. But what we've done today in our churches is once we got money, we replaced evangelism um, with marketing. And marketing is is a poor substitute for evangelism because marketing enters the conversation people are already having. And people aren't having the conversation that evangelism needs to have. Evangelism creates the right conversation. It's actually a little bit more powerful than marketing. And, and, and that's why even Paul, you know, I mean, Paul didn't want to have those conversations, but he knew how it worked. And so Paul, at the end of every epistle, um, or, or at least nearly every epistle, he says, pray for me for boldness that, that I would open my mouth. And, and this book isn't really a book about evangelism. But it's definitely a book that that postulates that if you look at every time that Jesus talked about the power of the Holy Spirit, it was always in connection with mission. And so when we sit back and we go, hey, you know, why do the missionaries have all the best stories? You know, I, I hear this missionary he's talking about smuggling Bibles in China. And why doesn't stuff like that happen here? Well, because those things were promised when you risk well, you know, the, the Holy Spirit is given for mission. And therefore, um, when you're out of your depth, um, when you're stepping out and doing things that make you uncomfortable or make you scared, like Paul, pray for me for boldness. Those are the moments where you need the Holy Spirit. And and I would, I you know, th- this book, look, it's not out to win friends and influence people. I love the church and I know the potential of the church. And I make the point that Jesus in uh, both Hebrews is is postured as a coach, 
And in Revelation, we see him coaching his church. We see him talking to the letters of the seven churches, saying, I know your potential. You're a champion. But like Mickey, you know, kind of chiding Rocky a bit, he's like, come on, you bum, you know, you you can do more than just beat Spider Rico, you know. And and so what what I see is that, you know, we're at a place right now where we're not really doing much where we need him. And those those are the fighting words right there. Right. I think that a lot of what we've done is we've automated everything in our life, including church. And because things are automated, once you have money, you can automate everything. We can't automate the gifts of the Holy Spirit when they're spread out into the lives of the people. The The reality is the early church was powerful because average everyday believers were activated in their gifts. And so when you read Acts 2.42 that everybody wants, that's what it looks like when the Holy Spirit is active in the lives of every believer. And that's that's kind of what the book is really getting at kind of like when when Tori said in the early church if you took the holy spirit out 95% of what they did would stop but today if you took the holy spirit out of the church 95% of what we do would probably continue wow yeah whenever you say you didn't write the book to um to necessarily make friends um you know, you are very, very clear and direct um, throughout the book in, in many ways. I think in a good, a, a, a positive way. And again, I encourage people to, to take a look. But you do, you know, you speak about America's Burger King Christianity, uh, Jesus Your Way. And you kind of talk about um, the church as, um, you know, sometimes approaches the, this this whole idea of being the church as um, religion, as big business. And in order to keep that machine running you have to feed it. You know, there needs to be funds. And then spiritual leaders then begin to feel like they need to cater to the crowds at that point and give them what they want rather than what they need. Is the structure that we have set up in the church, you know, specifically talking about here in, in the U.S. at this point, is the way we're structured inhibiting our opportunity to really live out the mission? I think so. You know, it, and, and I have a unique perspective on this. And and let me just say to the to the people listening, this book really is about, like I said, mobilizing everyday believers. It's what every pastor wants, right? Every pastor gets in front of his church on a Sunday morning, and even though it's kind of set up like an audience, deep down, he doesn't want his church to be an audience, right? Right, right. Um, it, it's the very thing that, that pastors are bending over backwards to try to change, but our structure is set up like that. And so what we do is we meet with them talk to them as an audience, and then we tell them, don't be an audience. And, and what's interesting, and, and I love the church, man. Like I, here's the thing. I'm not against any model of church. Um, one of my, uh, like Rick Warren's, one of my heroes, and th- this always shocks people because my ministry looks nothing like Rick's. <laughs> um, it looks a little bit more like the Apostle Paul. I call myself a serial church planner. I plant churches, raise up leadership, and blow the heck out of Dodge. And and, and, and serial church planning sounds a bit creepy, so I tell people I'm a ninja church planner, <laughs> which uh, means I, I steal out of the shadows, strike hard, and then poof, off to the next assignment. And, and one of the things that's, that's important is my perspective is, as a serial church planner, a ninja church planner, is that when I go in there, it's kind of like the Apostle Paul. Scholars say that on average, he planted every three to four months. If you look at the 11-year span that Paul's ministry was active that we have in the New Testament, 
scholars estimate in between 12 to 23 churches, because some of them that were planted, like the seven churches, we don't know his involvement in those, planted out of Ephesus, but but three to four months, you know that Paul didn't have long at each location. It was only Ephesus he spent three years at. So what, what happens is the Apostle Paul goes in, and the first thing he's concerned about is raising up others in their gifts. And so in the book, I make the point that today our people spend an hour every Sunday watching one guy exercise his gift for 30 minutes on the stage. When the New Testament is more about raising up the gifts of others and turning them loose. And there's very much a sense of the one another's in scripture and the way it's set up where we, we stare at the back of other people's heads. I can't even practice the one another's during the church service. And it's not a book. I, I never attack the church service in the book. What I'm saying is in answer to the question, yes, our structure is not helping. Um, and there's ways that as we've planted, um, we actually have changed the entire structure of our church services to literally foster the discovery and releasing of the gifts of the body. So it becomes body ministry. So evangelism can literally happen during the church service because I, I like a good church service. I'm not against a church service at all. But in the New Testament, it wasn't leave it to the professionals. If you think of what I just said, it was the professionals leave. And because the professionals leave, like Paul and Timothy and Titus, it became body ministry. When Paul put those elders in place, they were tasked with finding others. And so there were three tiers, find faithful men who will train others who can teach others. And so there was these three, actually four tiers in that, but it was literally this discipleship process where everybody got awoken. And I make the point that the church is really the sleeping giant right now, dreaming about how awesome it is. But when I read the book of Acts and I look at today, I see a major disconnect. That's good. Now, as you're talking about disciple making and developing leaders, you know, many of our listeners are pastors in established churches. So, Peyton, what are some ways that a pastor can begin shifting from leadership that is primarily done by the professionals to kind of releasing that leadership as these disciples are being made and uh, released for ministry. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting because this leads right into kind of what I left hanging in the last uh, answer, and that is that what we did, um, in, in when I first got into church planning, I got into it accidentally. I mean, I, I had helped uh, as part of the evangelistic team for uh, church plant in Hungary and then uh, church planning in New Zealand, uh, but didn't didn't think at that time I was really a church planner. Um, my first church that I that I you know kind of had more of a a role in was out of Martin Lloyd Jones's church in Wales. I was the evangelist there, and and I started realizing you know I'm kind of evangelistic here, and that that was the beginning of me understanding. I think that that those five roles in the Book of Acts were still for today, because I realize every time I go somewhere, people get saved. And so people start asking me, hey, will you come preach at my church? And I, I didn't see myself as an evangelist. And later I, I became a church planner, which I think is more the apostolic type role. But 
I didn't realize it. I stumbled into it. You know, I always joke around that Rick Warren may be the purpose-driven church. I've always been the accident-driven guy. <laughs> and, and, and so uh, I was working in a Starbucks, finishing my MA in theology, getting ready to move back to America after seven years in Wales. And what happened was I started a reading group through Dan Brown Da Vinci Code. And not knowing that was going to turn into a church plant, but the first night, 30 people came. They begged for a second night. I, I didn't really want to do a second night, but they said, we're drinking good coffee. We're talking about Jesus and nobody's yelling at us. And I thought, <laughs> well, okay, you know, the, we're on to something here. Second night, 40 people. Third night, 50 people turn up at this Starbucks. And it just became this thing. But But when it became an official church plant, um, it was because somebody came up to me and said, hey, Peyton, I, I, I'm reading the Bible and, and there's this thing about worship and I didn't know how to do it. So I went in my shower and remember, this is in the country where, you know, 1.3% go to church. He said, so I sing Doctor, you know, Spirit in the Sky by Doctor and the Medics. <laughs> and he goes, did I do it right? And I said, brother, you did it awesome. And and, and the reality was I, I started thinking we got to teach these people how to worship, you know, the discussion group is great. And our third night, somebody said, Hey, we're, we're done talking about this Dan Brown stuff. We've, we've shown that's all bunk, but the Gnostic gospels, okay, those aren't real, but what about the real gospels? Could we go through that? And this was all like kind of crowdsourced. Well, when it became an actual church plant, what had made this so powerful was this was synagogue style evangelism. This was people wanting to talk about Jesus, giving the platform to talk. And of course, we know that the most evangelistic book in the Bible is the book of John. And, and if you subtitle John's gospel, it's really conversations with Jesus. Mm. And I'm, I'm a diehard preacher. You know, you don't become a, a, a pastor at Lloyd-Jones' church without believing strongly in preaching. But what we did is when we took the church service, we made it longer made it an hour and a half instead of an hour. And I quickly learned that the only people who really wanted an hour-long service were Christians. The non-Christians were like, we, we would finish, and they would still stay there and want to talk. And what we did is we, we said, we're not going to sit in rows. We're going to do what we did in Starbucks, where we sat in circles. We had a bunch of small groups. When it got up to 50 people, conversation became difficult. So we had multiple uh, circles that were started up. And so we had horseshoes, tables, little coffee tables. We bought at Ikea. We set up eight chairs around each coffee table so you could still face the screen, have worship, have preaching, but then we would break into discussion groups. And over the years, we changed the format. Um, we might lead off with a question, go to preaching, then come back or break the preaching in two, cover each point. But this synagogue style evangelism that Paul engaged in um, with the Jews was very effective for people. And what was happening in each of these groups was I discipled, and this is, this is where I'm actually uh, answering the question now. That was just to set the stage. <laughs> <laughs> but what I did is I would disciple those small group leaders and I would take them aside, kind of like Jesus did, where he had that that tiered discipleship where he has the 72 he sends out. He's discipling them, but he brings the 12 and he selects the 12. And out of those, he really pours into three. And so what I did is I brought those small group leaders in. Those were our leadership team. And then I, my church planners, I brought in 
Um, and there was, there just happened to be three. And so this became something I was always rediscovering what I was reading in the gospels and acts and ministry, first century style ministry. And that became a real passion of mine. And uh, my first book, Church Zero, was all about that team church planning, doing doing team church planning throughout a region and how powerful that was. And it was kind of like an undiscovered secret weapon, like the Ark of the Covenant that needed to, to be unearthed. But what we found in our local contacts in these churches, in these church plants, was if I had a small group and there were non-believers, which there always was in these groups, and believers, um, for the first time, they were learning to pray for others. They were learning to evangelize in conversation. And, and so going to church became mission. And they were also discovering they had spiritual gifts. So when someone came in and, and, and their life was falling apart, they might discover they have the gift of encouragement or compassion or helps or giving. And so once that happened, our church began to become this thing that I felt like, man, I'm not even needed here anymore. I'm really kind of a spectator. I'm, I'm leading, it seems, a room full of leaders. That's excellent, brother. Well, one of the things that you touch upon there is the role of the Holy Spirit as people begin, you know, living into their spiritual gifts. And in your book, I loved what you refer to as the Holy Combustion Triangle. Peyton, can you talk to us a bit about this Holy Combustion Triangle and, you know, its role in living out God's mission? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, I'm, I'm old school. I mean, if you kind of like Spurgeon said, if you cut me, I'll, I'll, I'll bleed Bibeline, you know, it's, um, and, 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 and I probably, that's probably too high of a compliment for me, but the reality is I'll, I'll bleed old school big time. So this idea of revival, um, so much of this book is kind of my hidden operating system, where um, it's like my iOS, right, to an iPhone. Everything I do, this book was kind of like, look, I'm rediscovering these first century principles. And one of them is this idea in Acts that, uh, that, that Luke bends over backwards to let you know. And, and my friend put it, my friend Brian put it this way. He said, you, you don't become an Acts chapter 2 church unless you're first in Acts chapter 1 church. And so the power of the Holy Spirit, Luke is bending over backwards to say, you know, kind of like Jesus says in Acts 1-4, he says, wait before you go, Acts 1-8. Um, there's this wait before you go. These guys were so poured into by Jesus for three years, and then their hearts burned for 40 days as the risen Christ poured out to them the secrets of the universe. And yet Jesus tells him in Acts 1-4, hey guys, wait, you're still not ready. And And so it's not until they receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And I always kind of like to pick at pastors that say that they were scared and hiding and cowering. The Bible never says that. We've totally made that up. Um, these guys were chomping at the bit. And that's why Jesus says, hey, wait. You don't tell people to wait unless they're like ready to go. And, and, and But Jesus says, but you're, you need what I had. You need the Holy Spirit. He's going to do the heavy lifting. And I think with evangelism and all those things, that's what it is. And so when I say hidden operating system, what I'm saying is there is that power, kind of like D.L. Moody. This this is old school now. Men of generations past, they knew this. They knew what it was to lock themselves in a room, R.A. Torrey, D.L. Moody, the secret power of D.L. Moody. That's the title of his autobiography. D.L. Moody said it this way. He said, 
all the time I was trying to carry buckets of water in ministry. And he goes, but now there's a river that carries me. George Whitfield, his ministry absolutely unlocks um, when he throws himself on the bed and says, I thirst. Billy Graham walks out into a clearing before his ministry pops and he he's out in the middle of the woods and he says, God, there has to be more. I think there's a desperation in many ministers and I've been there where it's kind of like a breaking of just saying, God, I, I don't want to make things happen. I want you to do it. And so the combustion triangle is really, first off, I'm a gospel man. I believe in the grace of God for everything. But I think as we've been majoring on justification, we've been doing so to the exclusion of sanctification. Sanctification is a powerful evangelistic weapon. For example, uh, Paul tells Timothy, he says, um, cleanse yourselves of, you know, in every house there's instruments of noble and ignoble purposes. Cleanse yourself of the latter that you would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And, and so there's this idea that sanctification um, makes you more effective. Charles Spurgeon uh, starts off his book, uh, Lectures to My Students, with a chapter called The Minister's Self-Watch. And he talks about, quotes a proverb that if the axe isn't sharp, then the, the axeman has to exert more of his strength. And so a sharpened axe, you're the sharpened axe. And so when Jesus in John 17 says, uh, Father, I sanctify myself for their sakes that they might be saved or sanctified. Here's the reality. I've learned over the years, because I, I come from a reform background, that we have really dismissed sanctification. We're almost afraid to talk about it. Like a swarthy tooth madman's going to jump out of the bushes with a Bible if you, <laughs> you know, and thus say it, the Lord God, and he's going to spit all over you and, and get all legalistic. It's not legalism. Um, sanctification, I stay off porn. I, 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 I sanctify myself because I know what it is to be that instrument and, and, and want to have as much of the Holy Spirit channeling through me as possible. In Long Beach, I've needed it. I've been in my share of exorcisms and I'm a, I'm a psych nurse. And it, it only takes you one exorcism to realize, oh, <laughs> I don't have the goods for this or I really need, kind of like in a boxing match, I need, I, I need the Mike Tyson, you know, three second fight, man, where this is a knockout punch. I don't want to go the full 15 rounds. And that's in times past when we had revival. That's what Acts tells us is that over and over you, you go and you, you rely in dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And so the combustion triangle, which because uh, I was a firefighter, this works for me, is separation, consecration, and then I talk about consummation. And I talk a little bit about, you know, in the Old Testament you had the sacrifice. And uh, the, the, to show that the sacrifice was accepted, God would send this fire from heaven and it would consume the sacrifice. And I just say, look, whatever you offer to God because of the grace of Jesus, whatever you put on the altar, fire will consume it. But you got to put it on the altar. You have to, you have to submit yourself. And, and that's what the Bible calls yielding to the spirit, where Paul says, yield the instruments of your body as instruments, or it can be translated weapons of righteousness. I want to have an impact. I want to be powerful. And so saying that, there's the separation aspect. You would separate the sacrifice. It, it needed to be separated from sin. But then that's only one part of the equation. The other part of the equation is 
consecration. It also had to be consecrated, had to be separated not from something, just separated from sin. It had to be separated to God. And so when you dedicate or consecrate yourself and say, Lord, I am a living sacrifice. I am ready to be used by you. I want your Holy Spirit just to fill me and consume me. I I know that these are words and these are things that, again, I think the church is looking for the silver bullet, but we're denying the power of godliness, right? We're we're denying this power that's available. And and that's what it is for me, as I see this as an evangelistic tool. My justification was fully earned by Jesus. I'm not dancing for Jesus. It's not performance Christianity. It has nothing to do with my justification. It has everything to do with the power. And in the neighborhoods I've been in, in the places I planted, and some of the dangerous people I've dealt with, and the situations that that required more power, I've learned to be very jealous for that. Because mission changes everything and puts everything in context. And this is something that, lastly, the consummation is that idea that the fire from heaven, that's what we see in the apostles in the book of Acts. The fire is upon, they've been setting themselves aside for 10 days in that upper room, praying and seeking God. And like I said, this is crazy talk, right? Like people are listening, going, oh, you're, you're a holiness Pentecostal. You're, look, I don't know what I am anymore. <laughs> All I know is, is I want that. I want what they had in the first century. And, and those guys, it's like tongues of fire. Whenever the Holy Spirit, you know, kind of appears as something like a dove or, you know, a flame of fire, we should probably pay attention to that imagery. And as a firefighter, I'll tell you, when it says that wind blew through that upper room and it appeared on their heads as fire, what the Holy Spirit was saying was this is going to spread. And it's going to spread out of control like a forest fire. It is when wind blows on fire. I've been in forest fires. That's a bad thing, let me tell you. But that's what happened that day. That's the power that you saw where Peter, this broken man, the biggest screw up in the room, becomes this embodiment of grace, right? Where he's the most jacked up Christian there. And God goes, let me just show you, though, what I can do if you just... Put whatever brokenness you, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. I've made you perfect, but you submit and surrender everything you are, warts and all to me. That fire will come. I will consume you and I, you will become contagious and I will spread through you and you will become like Peter, a spectator of what I am doing. Wow. That's powerful. And and then as, as the Holy Spirit is um, consuming us and, and driving us, um, that plays into uh, this idea of the gifts of the Spirit, right? And and how the gifts yeah. of the Spirit begin to kind of show up uh, among our people within our churches. Can you talk a little bit about how you encourage that among your people? Yeah. Um, so the Apostle Peter, just a really um, powerful lead on from that. When he's up there that day at Pentecost, they say, Peter, you know, <laughs> go home, you're drunk, Peter. Right. And Peter says, no, no, look, it's it's 9 a.m. Taverns aren't even open. This is this is what Joel spoke of. And I always kind of laugh because that that, you know, oh, yeah, the book about locusts in the Old Testament, God's judgment. Sure, Peter, oh, we totally get it now. It it seems so out of context that he's quoting from this obscure minor prophet in the Old Testament. 
But what he says is always every time there's there's those messages in the Old Testament, God always laces it with hope and a greater promise of restoration. And he says, this is what the Spirit's doing right now. This is that what God promised. And then he ties it in with the gifts. And I always miss this. But what he what he does is he tells you that evangelism is tied to the gifts of every believer. And this is what he says. He says, in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh and your young men will, will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Your manservants, your maidservants. Uh, and this promise is to you and your children's children. This is perpetual. And to as many as our Lord God will call. And so here's this promise to the church that God, when his spirit is poured out, the gifts of every believer, man, woman, child, socioeconomic status, slave, free, they will be awakened. And when that happens, that's when the power comes. And so one of the things, like I said, instead of leave it to the professionals, I know every time I plan a church, I'm not going to be here. And so I need to get out of the Holy Spirit's way. I need to make sure people are not dependent on me like the Apostle Paul, I've got to quickly make disciples. And the way that I can do that is I can open up their gifts or help them discover them is a better way. And I, I can't do much other than help them discover. And once people discover their gifts, that in itself is powerful. Because sometimes people are using their gifts and they're using them unaware that they're actually spiritual gifts or just this is natural uh, to them because it's supernatural in them. And so what happens is like kind of like Neo on the Matrix, right? Um, there's that scene where they said, you know, when he starts winning and uh, Cypher says, you know, what's happening? And Trinity says he's believing. Believing what? Who he really is. Mm. Once you start to discover your gifts and it, it, it puts you like a key in a lock of mission, you understand what doors you're supposed to open. And so what happens for me, the, I, you know, the spiritual gift tests online, I remember doing the, the career center um, surveys when I was in high school and I came out literally no joke. I came out, they told me I'd be a good chicken farmer. <laughs> I'm not making that up. And so when I do the spiritual gift test, I'm like, mm, no, 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 that's not, that's not my gift. And, uh, in many of them anyways, you're, you're limited by what the particular belief set is of that survey anyways. Um, somebody had to engineer that with bias. And so what I've learned to do is to do it very organically. So I would have before a church plant, a vision meeting, and I would get local papers. So in Long Beach, we rented the Holiday Inn, could oversee the entire city, and they could see the, the skyscrapers and the skyline. And I would tell them, you know, look out that window there. There are more needs. There are hundreds of thousands of needs, way more than this tiny little band in this tiny little church will ever reach. And we're just a small core team. So what we need to do is we need to understand how the Holy Spirit divinely orchestrated why these people in this place at this time, right? What is our church unique to quote Will Mancini? So what we did was we would take these newspapers and I'd put people in groups. You probably picked up, I'm a group guy by now. I would throw the papers down on the middle of each table and I'd say, guys, read through these papers. Read about all the needs and circle with a black marker every need and write a note next to it if you need to, to put it. It might be a headline, but you put your own, what's the brokenness here? What's the need? So they would do that. 
And then once they were done, I would give them red markers and I'd say, now I want you to circle one or two that if money or manpower wasn't an issue, you would like to do something about. And I want you to get crazy with that. I want you to dream big dreams. I want you to um, don't worry about what we can do. Remember that we're talking about God. And so people would do that. And what I was doing, here, here's my theory. What I was doing was I was looking for their burdens. Because my theory is that if you find people's burdens, you find their passions. Right. And once you find their passions, their gifts aren't far behind. You see, all of us came to Christ. And when the Holy Spirit indwelled us, our gifts were deposited there. And they normally, we received them. And we were excited about them. We went and told somebody, hey, you know what we could do? And somebody looked at us and gave us that kind of bemused smile, maybe even pitied us and said, you know, I thought like that once. Or, you know, we don't do that here. We have a five-year plan or, you know, that's unrealistic. And somebody tamped him down in us. And we felt chastised and they lay dormant and we behaved and we fell in line and went to the service and got with the program. But our gifts sat there dormant and we got bored. And that's what I've noticed is that Christians don't get bored when they're using their gifts. They feel alive. And I've just learned, follow people's burdens to their passions and you'll find their gifts. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's great insight uh, and very, very practical and helpful um, to pastors. Peyton, tell me this, uh, Reaching the Unreached, Becoming Raiders of the Lost Art, your newest book. How can people find out more about the book uh, can, and how can they connect with you better? Yeah, so a um, couple different ways. So they can go to reachingtheunreachedbook.com. Uh, right now there's a bunch of freebies there. Um, they can download things. Um, you know, I've got three audio chapters. If you order through that site, it's still on discount. I don't know how much longer, but it's there. Also, if you want to connect with me, I mean, I, I do a bunch. Not only do I write and blog and run a couple of church planning podcasts that are focused on first century, I founded a network called New Breed. That's at newbreednetwork.org. And I also, uh, my website that kind of pulls all the different things, I do videos. It's all found on peytonjones.ninja. <laughs> awesome. Peytonjones.ninja. Very, very cool. Brother, I certainly appreciate uh, you taking the time to be with us again and to share with our, our audience, our pastors and, and ministry leaders. And, and it's so inspiring and encouraging to, to hear how God has kept you on your journey with him and has continued to stretch you and continue to open your eyes. And I think just as you've been sharing your own journey about how God continues to reveal things to you and, and open you up to how the Holy Spirit um, is at work and, and desires to be at work in us and through us, it encourages all of us to keep our eyes open and uh, keep focused and and allow the Holy Spirit to, to shape us as well. So thank you for that. Very inspiring and very encouraging. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. All right, brother. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. All right. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. Every week, as we are putting the episodes together, we're thinking of you, our pastors and ministry leaders, and striving to provide insightful and inspiring interviews as you seek to grow as a kingdom leader. So we hope you're finding value from the Church Leaders podcast, and if so, we'd certainly appreciate you taking a few moments to head over to iTunes and leave us a review. Your positive reviews and ratings help other church leaders more easily find our podcasts so they can benefit uh, from these interviews as well. 
And again, we thank you in advance. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas for guests, I would love to hear from you. You can send me an email to podcast at churchleaders.com, or you can connect with me on Twitter. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website, churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.